please turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. I'll be reading 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Father, we, as your church, are a desperate people to know more tangibly, personally, intimately what it is to imitate Jesus. Help us by the power of Your Word and the personal operation of Your Spirit upon each heart. Move on down this road in our lives. In the precious holy name of Jesus who did bear our sin and went before us in suffering. I pray. Amen. As a Christian, how do you view, look at, in, interpret the painful things, the trying things, the injustices done to you by other human beings? How do you interpret that? in your life. Our passage this morning answers how we should. Notice verse 21 begins with the word for, which means here comes an argument for what he previously said and what we saw a few weeks back in verses 18 to 20 summarized, he said, to many of these believers in A.D. 63, A.D. 64, who were slaves owned by others. And he says to them, be submissive, not only when it's easy or when you got a good, kind master, but even when your master is treating you unjustly. Abusive. Blaming, ridiculing, accusing, beating. And you, in that context, don't deserve it. 
And He said, if you remember there in verses 18 to 20, why? Because God is pleased with your response when it's flowing out of your walking consciously with Him through Jesus in the Gospel. That's the command that hangs here. Now, verse 21, for, meaning because, here is the reason, here's the proof, here's the foundation to understand why the Christian's undeserved suffering finds grace with God. Because to this, what he just said about suffering unjustly. To this you have been called. Let's get the flow starting from verse 19 up to the beginning of verse 21. Peter writes, For this is a gracious thing, meaning, it's a horrible translation, I think. He's saying, This finds for you personally, as a Christian, grace from God when you're walking consciously with God or mindful of God, one endures grief or sorrows while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this finds grace in the sight of God. Verse 21. Because to this you have been called. I'm going to stop there in a moment before we continue. He clearly has said you have been called by God to suffer. He's going to say more than that. We're going to see that. He's going to say how you respond to it you've been called to. But there are many who say, many fellow Christians who say, yes, it's true. Everybody, even Christians, will suffer injustices in this world. But it's never because in whatever way that God has a type of will for your suffering. But instead, God is totally not willing that that happen. However you figure that one out. He, though, because He is God and He is omniscient and He is omnipotent, He is the great responder to the injustices, the evil that are done against you. He, he, he's like the guy playing chess. When the enemy makes a move, God does not will the enemy's move, period. But it's his move now, and he's really good. And he puts that move in check, and he will somehow turn that move ultimately to your good. See, that's the question. Does God plan the place of suffering 
in the lives of His children? Or is He just the responder to the plans of others who are doing evil against Him? One evangelical pastor writes in a popular book, which I read a year and a half back, quote, When an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the, quote, purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of a tragedy caused by someone else. But this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. End quote. I think verse 21 refutes this fellow pastor's view. To this suffering unjustly you have been called. Unjust suffering is owing to God's individual call. Not coincidence. And Peter, as we've been reading through this letter, loves the word call. Listen to how he's used it and then uses it again here. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says... In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you. Oh, that's glorious. Out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you see? Then you saw the results of Him calling you. In chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Why? Because to this you have been called. In chapter 5, verse 10, he will say, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then our verse says, to this unjust suffering which causes you grief and pain, you have been called by this one great God. The Bible is clear that Christians, first, yes, we'd all agree on this, should expect Suffering. Jesus was clear in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you in order that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And then why am I going to go through tribulation, Jesus? Somehow we've got to put those together. In Acts 14.22, the Apostle Paul went back through the churches from city to city, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, Paul says, because these new believers are now saying, wow, look how the crud you're going through when you're up there in Corinth, in Greece. They hear about it, and Paul writes to them, and he says, I sent Timothy to you in order to encourage you so that no one may be moved or disturbed by the afflictions that we're experiencing. Why? Because you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Okay. The book of Job, stunning. Job's ten children were wiped out. And the text says, Job fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I have come into the world, and naked I shall return. The Lord has taken... Excuse me. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, so Job was confused, like the writer said. But the narrator, the next thing he said was, In all this, Job did not charge God with wrong. Then when the text says very explicitly, Satan is the one who afflicted Job with those loathsome boils and sores, he responded, Shall we not receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not also receive bad? And then you say, well, Job, you didn't get it. You missed the text. Satan did it. And the next thing the narrator says is that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Sad. We're going to see Jesus is our model. He knew who was in charge. He knew Pilate was not ultimately in charge. He told him so. You couldn't do a thing to me unless it's given to you from heaven. He knew why He came. He knew He was destined to be tortured, to suffer, and to die at the hands of willful, sinful human beings. And then He has Peter rise, preach in Acts. All of what was done by the hands of sinful men was the predetermined plan of God. The end of Joseph's life, his brothers meant harm. They had no good intention, no good purpose for, for, for Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, we know what it says, don't we? He says to his brothers, you did mean this for evil. That was your will. But God meant this means the same experience for good. The testimony of Scripture, it's just clear.
clear that God, in a mysterious way, ultimately does sovereignly rule. Therefore, ultimately does will even the unjust abuse or suffering of many of His people. And verse 21 says, in its context, to slaves with abusive masters, you have been called by God to this. In chapter 4, he's going to get really explicit in verse 19, where he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing good. Now, I think most of the time, once in a while we'll get a glimpse like Joseph. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And this is what came out of it. He was not living that way the previous 20 years. And he's hanging out in jail, for instance. What's it going on? And many times we'll never know until the resurrection. Sometimes we get taste and you look back and you see out of your pain how God utterly changed you and or brought another to saving faith. But we are to trust that God is God. Which is to say, He is sovereign. He is in control. And He does in an unfathomable way we all and if you're a believer, He's doing it for your ultimate good. But I can't figure out why. I know. Do you ever scratch your head when you read Scripture? I mean, I'm telling you, for years as a Christian, reading this part of the book of Acts bugged me. I just Because I had teachers that would not open doors of Scripture to see what's plainly there. So therefore, I didn't have a category to understand stuff like this. Jesus, did you not know what you're doing? You, you, you took 12 close ones. Okay, Judas, you understood that. You made that clear. You knew there was a sudden condition. Okay, so you took 11 to invest your life in, to mentor and you, from the 11, you took three who were really close. Peter, James, and John. And then, so early in the book of Acts, probably within the first six years after the resurrection, there it is. Herod wants to please the unbelieving Jews. He grabs hold of the apostle James, the son of Zebedee, and he executes him. He's dead. It's over. Why? Well, because God could not save him from death. Maybe. Except the next thing Acts says is Herod was so thrilled about killing James he got a hold of Peter. And he was going to do the same thing. And he had him so well guarded. 
He had his feet and his hands fastened in steel. He had guards on the inside of the jail and on the outside of the jail. And then the next day where he was to be slaughtered, God sent an angel and miraculously delivered him from jail. That should bug us. How did James die then? Jesus, for six weeks, is hanging out with numbers of those whom He's appeared to, and especially the eleven apostles. And He's in His resurrected body. He's eating fish with Him. He's appearing. He's disappearing. And He sits down with Peter on the beach and He says to him, this is how many years from now you're going to die a very painful suffering death in order to glorify Me. Jesus, you just conquered death. Why are you telling Him this? Because this is the way God has purposed it to be. Hebrews 11, great chapter of men of faith who because of being born again people, living by faith in God's Word, they conquered kingdoms. They had victory after victory and then without batting an eye, the writer of the Hebrew says, and they were stoned to death, sawn in two, destitute, ill-treated, all by faith. That's the first main clause of our text. To this suffering, even at the hands of evil people doing it unjustly, you have been called. Now, notice the next thing he says. He gives a reason. Here's a foundation for that statement. Because Christ went before you and He is your example. Read verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. So He says, the reason you're called to this is because Jesus went before. He suffered. Now, He could have said died, but I think He said suffered on purpose because in the context, it's especially all the stuff leading up to His final breath on the cross, like a trial, slug, spit upon, the verbal abuse. He says, He did not. Yeah, I'm going to jump there for a minute again. He entrusted what was happening to Him to God who judges justly. He was entrusting God's Sovereign purpose in why He was incarnate. That was the power for Him to respond or not respond the way He did. He's the example. Therefore, slaves in the first century suffering abuse, Peter is saying, God also 
has purpose for exactly what you are going through. He has, like He did for Jesus, design. Now, if you remember, just if you flip back to chapter 1, this is so crystal clear in the Apostle Peter's mind. Remember, verses 6 and 7. He wrote, In this great, great joy in the Gospel, inheritance laid up for you in heaven, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested... Don't miss those two little words in English, so that. That means purpose. That's a purpose clause. You, he says, experience grief. In other words, you experience in your emotions, whether it's happening because of relationships, ridicule, persecution, or physical pain, the grief-causing stuff, that's what trials, various, manifold, all kinds of experiences that your mind can imagine, you experience them in order that. And that purpose is not Satan's, nor the person who may be hurling that abuse on you. He says, in order that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, but that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And He just told us for a little while. And what He means in the context is clear. For the rest of your life, here in mortality. Not immortality. In space mortality. In the context of the previous two verses, in verse 4, this great, great living hope in the inheritance kept away, reserved, waiting for you in heaven. So you rejoice in that future expectation even though now for a little He's saying these pains, whatever they are, and slaves, these trials are refining your faith like fire refines gold. The flow of this letter of 1 Peter starting there in chapter 1 has been clear. The Gospel message comes. God Raise life into you. And you believe the gospel. You have a living hope. And now he is sanctifying you, working on, molding, refining the heart where your faith resides through many 
and various experiences in this life. Whether you're Peter, whether you're a slave in the first century, or whether you're the Apostle Paul. Listen to how Paul describes God's handiwork in his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, Christians, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that it got so bad we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. There it is again. In order that. He says again, all of this painful, hard, unpleasant experience had a purpose. And it was not the purpose of those who were causing such pain to Him on earth. He says it was in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God loves a broken and a contrite heart. In that Psalm 51, Isn't that what the Holy Spirit teaches us through King David after his horrendous, grievous sin? But then we see, thank God, a model, repentance. And comes out of his mouth. He says, all this religious activity, me taking a bull and goat and slaughtering in the temple. This is not the point! If my heart is not changed. It's not what you seek, he says. But you seek a broken, smashed. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians. Learning not to trust in herself, but in you. Who raise the dead. And so Paul writes here, he will stretch. And it's always unpleasant. He will stretch our lack of faith in order, in order to keep the kernel of genuine faith growing, proving it's real. God chooses us. And then, 1981, it's happened to you, pick He calls you to faith. And you're forever changed and he calls you by leaving you here this is first peter as an alien in exile on earth called to experience suffering you can say it in many different ways i think so that Psalm 73 might grow in us, become 
little by little more an actual reality? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not just that that's the way the Bible teaches about God's working in our lives, but He tells us. And I think because to grow in what you know, to know God's design in what you might be going through right now. Or in unimaginable circumstances six months from now. To know God has not slipped up. To know You are as His child in His perfect will. Even in that is part of your sanctification. Because if while you're experiencing things that none of us wish to experience, you think in the midst of it, you're not ready for it, you don't hear Scripture like this, you don't hear preaching like this, you will picture what you're going through as utterly pointless. And it may do the opposite of what it's supposed to do in real Christians and drive you from God instead of from everything else. But God... Know God's ultimate sovereign will in all that you experience. Peter encourages us this way in chapter 4, verse 13. Christian, rejoice to the extent, or insofar, rejoice to the extent that you share in Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when He comes back. Now back to her text. We sing. There it is. Here's His big proposition. Believe to unjust suffering you have been called. Because Christ also suffer for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And now in verses 22 to 23, He gives the pattern of life that Jesus left that we are to follow in unjust suffering. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now think about it. He says, Jesus, he is the only human being ever who did not sin and who did not have a sin nature. 
Think about it. Therefore, the unjust abuse he took is nothing compared to any of us. It is radically, utterly different from what we call unjust abuse. And yet, his response is, no deceit was found in his mouth. What I mean by that is verse 23. When they hurled abuse at him, he didn't return it. When they were beating him, he suffered. He didn't threaten. But positively, he did something. He kept on entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Now, I think there's a reason in the context why Peter chooses to focus on the sins of reviling, returning that, what you say with your mouth, I'm going to get back at them. Because these slaves, they have abusive, unjust masters and the temptation to not be submissive and to let them have it. And what they're going through was strong. And isn't that the first place usually where our sin manifests itself? When you're on the freeway, you get cut off. Or you married people. When the spouse says something to cut. And the first thing is to revile. I know the right thing to say. To get back and to get justice. When you're anywhere, you ever had a friend who should have known better and just utterly accuses you unrepentantly of evil or wrongdoing that you know you didn't do? What do you do? Being reviled that Jesus experienced refers to all that abusive, insulting stuff. They get. Let me just, just give a taste. I'm not going to give you the reference. I'm just going to quote Scripture for speed. Then they spat on His face and they beat Him with their fist and others slapped Him and they said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who's the one who hit you? And before Pilate, He did not answer. In Matthew 27, they put a crown of thorns on his head and beat him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And while hanging on the cross, they hurled abuse at him. But he did not threaten. He did not revile back. Jesus not just didn't. Here's the core of the text. Because you can ask him, why? Why, Jesus? Because he's our model. The text is clear. He's our example. We're supposed to walk after him, to follow him. Why? Because 
he was continuing. That's the tense of the verb here. He was continuing to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That, in the text, is the key to Jesus not reviving back and not threatening. And he is our example. The foundation, the motive of patiently enduring slave to your slave master who is abusive is to continually entrust yourself and your circumstance to God who judges perfectly, justly. He is the righteous judge. This, what he's giving us this morning, is at the core of the Christian life. Now, what do I mean? I mean, the gospel is a message. The gospel isn't you. It's a message about God's salvation through Jesus Christ. And that message creates Christians by the power of the Spirit. And when I say it's the Christian life, it means from that, there's something that's real. To one extent or another, differing growths of the fruit of this, that's different than you would have been had you not been born again and come to faith. I say it that way on purpose. I don't want to try going that way. Be careful. I would just for a moment, because now I see you talking about. Be careful of measuring your fruit by others. Measure your fruit by where you were yesterday. It's a little bit safer. Because there are many people that when it comes to how they socialize in this world are much better by nature than others are by grace because from where God started them. Now, where the heck was I? Think, okay, that's where I am. Here it is. The gospel creates the Christian life because the natural response when we are accused wrongly, unjustly, is to lash out. It is to get back. It is to not stand for it. It is to have to get revenge. It is to set it right. It is, how do I say, the right thing. That, that's nature. Sin nature. The nature of people and Christians, when they give into the flesh, our sinful nature, which is depending on ourselves. And not entrusting it to God. At those moments when we sinfully revile back and threaten the spouse, the boss, the employee, the friend, at those moments it is giving proof at that moment we do not trust that God is sovereignly in control and we do not trust this text right here which is telling us 
complete justice will be done. We don't believe it. Therefore, we take it into our own hands. It's speaking, this text is speaking so directly to us today. If in hard circumstances like being a slave with an abusive slave master, how much more in a way we deal with each other as husband and wife, in the workplace, with roommates, with neighbors, with the people that work in the store, with the mechanic. We can go on and on. How, how much more? Well, we would say the little things, but we know those little things, they are gifts of look at your unbelief, Joe. You're upset because someone slowed you down on the road and you're going to be eight seconds later than you would have been. <laughs> or it gets harder when people gossip about you. It means they talk about you in order to put into other people's minds things that aren't true and are hurtful about you. And anger rises. Or you're really angry at your government. Leaders in the church do you create injustice? Will you trust God? See, verse 23 says, Christians are to have a different response than what our nature we're born with dictates. It is deeply entrusting our lives to God. This is the core of biblical faith. Remember how the Hebrew writer says it in chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. So here it is again. Imitate Christ. He says, believer, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility and anger against Himself. Consider that so that you may not grow weary or become faint-hearted. Follow Him, Peter says, because He is our example. That's why Peter didn't say, just do what Jesus did. He says, this is how He did it. He kept perseveringly entrusting everything to God. That's why He didn't lash out. That's why He didn't threaten. He committed it all to Him. 
He entrusted. That verb means He handed over. Take it. Committed it to God. Now, in the Greek, it actually does not specify what He handed over. It literally just says it this way, very woodenly. He entrusted to the one who judges justly. And say what? I mean, context. I, mean, I think uh, himself. That it's a good translation. If you're understanding, Jesus entrusted himself, meaning the whole ball of wax here, the being spit on. The being slugged. The being as being the Messiah mocked for being such. He entrusted the sin of those who were sinning against Him. All of that to the one who judges justly. That's what He's saying. Therefore, got to get this. Peter is in no way saying that justice does not matter. Slave with an, and it's literally in the Greek, with an unjust slave master. He is not saying justice doesn't matter. But he's saying God is the final and ultimate judge. Quote, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It means trusting the truth of God's call of you and for you on this earth and the truth of his ultimate justice. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to us believers and he says, Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. Because it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what Jesus entrusted. That's what Peter calls us to entrust to Him. When everything within you wants to lash out, take revenge, revile back, threaten, damage, and hurt the other. Who has done you an injustice? Now, okay, this is what I want to try to do before I close. Why? <laughs> in other words, we're going to do now. Okay. Uh, hopefully, you see that. If not, don't believe it until you see it in the text. Okay. There, there's the text. How does this fit? This is what we're going to do. Biblical theology. How does this fit? I mean, is this, how, how does this work in the whole 
cohesive unit of worldview, understanding Christianity. What's God up to? I, this, is, this is my go at it. The saving work of Jesus Christ, it creates Christians. And the Christians, they are the church. It creates the church in this world. And the work of Christians, the work of the church is not only to announce, preach, tell the gospel with your mouth. It is also to demonstrate it. with your life. That's what He's saying. You've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. I see. Tell me about the hope. I got words for you. I got propositions. I got statements of historical fact and appeal for you to come to faith. Don't ever lose the Gospel. And then it says we're also called in this life to follow Jesus in suffering. And to model Him in the way He dealt with it and bore. In other words, say that the Gospel message and the fleshly body. This is how Paul talks in 2 Corinthians. He, he carries about in his body sufferings of Christ. And it's directly connected to the message He's bearing. The message with our mouths and the demonstration in the way you deal with your spouse. Or a Soviet prison guard is part and parcel of that one big, huge message. Both are going together. And they're proclaiming this message. Which foundationally is this? Well, let me Because how can you do that, Jesus? How could you do that? Thousands of fellow believers over the centuries who were literally martyred without cussing them out? How could you do it? They entrusted to Him who judges justly. This is the foundation of the Gospel. It is this. There is a God. And therefore, there is such a thing as right and wrong. Good and evil. Justice and injustice. Your mouth speaks it and your life is supposed to model it. And because of that, this one true God who is justice will right every wrong perfectly. He will finally enact all justice perfectly. He'll repay. Okay, now, that's doom for all of us. It's the Gospel. But... I who thus deserve God's just eternal wrath because of my willful rebellion 
in my willful disregard for His holy, perfect law. I who was doomed, I'm not now because He has sent His eternal Son in true humanity in order to enact perfect justice for my sin upon Jesus Christ. And He's proved it to all by raising Him from the dead. And thus I am free from that prospect of just wrath because justice was done on my behalf. And another, and not only for me, here's the message, but for all who will believe in Him. I and you will be free from God's eternal wrath. And this great Savior Jesus then says, pick up your cross and follow me. Because you have been called to suffer injustices in this sinful, evil age in order to show the truth in your life of the promise of the gospel of eternal life in the resurrection. Or the way Paul says it, for me, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life I now, here's the life, live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And so he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, I will not be at all ashamed. He's in prison because of the preaching of the Gospel. I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Whether by life or by death. Because for me to go on living, if they don't execute me now, it means more preaching Christ. If they kill me, to die is gain. That's the Gospel. That's the message. Paul not only spoke it, he was called to demonstrate it. That the promise of eternal life is real. That's why Paul won't retaliate. That's why Jesus didn't retaliate. We're called to suffer as Jesus suffered in order to demonstrate in our lives the hope of the gospel that we preach with our mouths. Let me just listen and see if you don't hear the connection of this. Colossians chapter 1 verses 24 to 25. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings which are for your sake, Colossian church. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God's grace. But I'm going to take that out from it. Don't miss the flow. I rejoice in my sufferings. There's something about carrying, following Jesus in suffering, Paul says, in my Paul's preaching, 
I'm carrying the message in my experiences along with my tongue. And why? In order to make the Word of God fully known. He's saying what Peter said. There's a living hope in an inheritance that is laid up for you in heaven. It's reserved. It's imperishable. And Paul's saying, that inheritance laid up is real. Watch me. That's what he's saying. He said it here. Now I'm going to shut my mouth. Paul says, now watch. It's real. He's saying, I'll preach. He's saying, I'll give my mortal life for it. I'll die an early death violently for it, he's saying, because the gospel is true. The greatest news possible. Which means God is perfectly just. Jesus could trust in his humanity. Peter will trust about a year from this writing and he's telling us to Paul could trust all accounts will be and meet ultimate perfect justice I don't know he's saying this I know how hard this is as a, as a sinful human being we're supposed to pursue it He's saying that's the power to follow Jesus in your suffering. But it's a Christian that hurt me. Every, every sin will be met with perfect, absolute justice. Nothing will be swept whether it's met in the blood of Jesus Christ or whether the person will stand alone on judgment day apart from Christ, justice will be done. And you ultimately should rejoice at both those prospects. I'm just going to, having said that, I know we're going long, but I, just listen. You, I guess you could look if you want, but I'm going to read Paul to you. And it's, I think what I'm trying to say here in the last two minutes is what he says right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. Listen as I just read Holy Scripture. We ourselves, Thessalonians, boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This experience is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Here's our part. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? If, if, if that is you, that means you have been called out of darkness into His light to see the beauty and the joy of Christ and to embrace Him. And it means you have been called as an alien and in this life to experience sufferings to various degrees that cause internal pain and wrestling with your flesh. And it means thus we're called to follow Jesus in that suffering. I just want to make a couple closing comments. God does, yes, sometimes in various degrees in people's lives, will them to experience injustices that may ultimately get them killed and everything else short of it. That's what the text says. To this you've been called. Now, okay. Should we infer from that, uh, then we should not fight for justice in this world? That we should be indifferent to the pain and the suffering of injustices of other human beings in this world? The answer is Ronnie's nodding her head. No, she's not. She's shaking it. No. So, but don't miss it. We are first, foundationally, to be assured that ultimate, complete justice is and will only be in God on the last day. Just one example. In Revelation 6, there will be those who are calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? No one will get away with anything ever. I remember, it must have been late 90's when Pol Pot peacefully passed away in his old age. If you don't know who Pol Pot is, leader of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, responsible for the murder of over three million human beings, and he gets to die that way, no one will get away with anything. This life is but a vapor judgment is coming.
coming. But secondly, we have just seen in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, God's not indifferent to injustice. That's why He's ordained civil governments. In order to punish. But not ultimately. But there's some type of enactment of, of justice God is interested in on this earth. Besides text after text, it calls us to love righteousness and mercy and do justice. He's ordained civil authority in order to punish justice. I think that means, Christians, we should legitimately campaign, fight for justice, protest uh, the, the brutality of China against particular peoples, and North Korea, and all the human rights violations. If you're in the 19th century, and you got a writing gift, you probably should write a that book called Uncle Tom's Cabin that will penetrate the minds and the hearts of millions of white Americans leading up to the final abolition of slavery. We should fight against the injustice of the murder of babies in mommy's wombs that are done legally but immorally at the will of the woman who has the baby. We should write. We should speak. We should protest. We should vote. And vote out. And vote in. But, having said that, God's command to do justice, to stand for justice, to promote justice in this world, His ordaining of civil authority in order to do justice None of that nullifies the calling for individual Christians to endure suffering with Jesus as the model. God's glory is seen to an extent even in civil government, even in the execution of murderers, even in the imprisonment of those who batter people's heads with baseball bats. His glory, to an extent, is seen there, and His glory is seen in the church while they experience suffering in this world and demonstrate the gospel, or the way Peter said, in order that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. For to this... You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you will follow in His steps. So let us, as Peter said in chapter 1, hope fully in the grace to be brought to us at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And thus take up our cross and follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, I beg that You help. 
us. Learn. Pray. Think about. Be graced by Your Spirit to accept these truths for the sake of what may lay ahead for many of us in the future. We want Jesus to be glorified. We want to love You more. We want to depend on You more. And yes, our flesh does not want to get it this way. So, help our unbelief to the glory of the name of Jesus.